Welcome again to Church of Pod, where we come together to know God the Father by following Jesus, His Son. My name is Steve, and I'm privileged to be with you again today. Who am I? Now that's the question of the hour, isn't it? Especially across the Western world, it's become a huge industry. Personality tests like Myers-Briggs, Enneagram, DISC, StrengthsFinder, High Five, and Hogan are common across corporations and churches alike. I've actually taken each one of those tests as a team member in various companies the past few decades. DNA tests such as 23andMe, Ancestry, and Family Tree can reveal with pinpoint accuracy the makeup of a person's genetics and where in the world they're from. Then jump to social media, post your results, and let the games begin. Who am I? As fascinating and important as it may be to understand ourselves, we've lost sight of what's most important. There have been many times sitting in a church service and we're in the middle of worship and I feel like coming in with these words. It's all about me, Jesus. There's nothing about you, not your glory or your fame. Okay, maybe that's a bit extreme. But even though we know it's about Jesus, what does that really mean? Today, we begin to explore who Jesus says he is and how that will lead us to his Father. And the best way to understand Jesus is to start with a few of the things that others say about him and things that he says about himself. Let's begin with a foundational scripture. This is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9, beginning with verse 18. Now, it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. Now in the New Life Version, it says, You are the Christ, Son of the living God. Jesus went on to say to Peter, that that bit of insight was not something that he figured out on his own, but that was revealed to him by the Father. And just think about it. I mean, that was huge. Peter recognizing that Jesus was the Messiah, the Messiah, the long-awaited Savior for the people of Israel, the long-promised Savior, but hundreds of years. Scripture records that the Messiah was promised, and there were a lot of different ideas about what that meant for the nation, for the people of Israel, what that meant in relationship to the Romans. But let's just focus on the revelation of who Jesus is. Jesus didn't say, no, that's not me. That's somebody else. Jesus accepted that as something that was revealed by the Father himself. Let's go on. Now, this passage is a little bit lengthy, but I think it's worth reading the whole thing because it gives us some context. And a lot of times when we're looking at Scripture, you pull out a verse or two, and, and I think that's where you can get into trouble pretty quickly. And sometimes you really need to know the conversation or the story or the situation around a verse or a, a number of verses. So this is out of the Gospel of John, chapter 8, and we'll begin with verse 48. Now here's a Scripture where Jesus clearly instructs us who he is. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? 
Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Now, right there, Jesus is promising them the assurance of eternal life. That's a big promise if Jesus is simply a human sent from God. Let's go on. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you, but I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You're not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Now this is one of the most profound pieces of the New Testament. When Jesus claims that he is the I am, that before all things, I am, only the Father can say that about himself. And to me, this is one of the places where we begin to weave together the idea that Jesus is not just a prophet sent from God, that Jesus is God himself sent to earth for the salvation of his creation. Now, there's a lot more to that, and we're going to talk about that in a little bit. So let's, do, let's have one more example. Here's another example from the book of John, this time in chapter 10, starting with verse 22. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe, because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Wow. I and the Father are one. I don't, I don't even know if the, if the Jews of that time, expecting a Messiah, would come, would deliver them from the Romans, would, would give them significance in the world once again. I don't know if even they thought that the Messiah would be more than a great prophet, more than Abraham, Moses, a great leader. So for Jesus to say, I and the Father are one, and before Abraham was, I am, was the highest form of blasphemy. No wonder they wanted to stone him. But it wasn't just that. It challenged them at the very root of their understanding of who Jesus was. And I think today we're in a society where we want, it's, it's really easy for Jesus to be this great teacher. And you hear it often. People say, well, I, I think that Jesus is terrific. He has so many great things. God is love. But if you really look at what he's saying, if you understand the implications of what he's saying, Jesus is either who he says he is, or he's a madman. 
And I've been challenged recently to read a book. Uh, an early mentor of mine, Marty Root, told me about a book called On Common Ground. And I was especially interested because Timothy Keller is somebody that I respect. In fact, he just uh, passed recently. He has a, led a really terrific life as a theologian, a scholar. He led a church in New York City for uh, many, many years. And he writes one of the introductory sections that has to do with being the pastor. This is a whole group of different people, musicians uh, and others that are telling their perspective. And really, that's what this podcast is about. Church of Pod is about different perspectives that lead us to Christ and ultimately to a relationship with, with God. And so we have so many voices in the world today, so many so many ways to go, so many things to consider, so many uh, philosophies to appreciate that I thought this would be a good, uh, a good opportunity to read this section here. And I'm going to go ahead. This is actually on page 20 of the book. It's fairly early on. But this is uh, Dr. Timothy Keller, pastor, talking about his own story. And he says this, The mainline Protestantism I knew in the 1960s offered a kind of compromise. I said it was possible to have an expressive self and still believe in Christianity. It was clear, for example, that in that kind of church, you could be an active member and still have sex as desired. You could believe whatever Christian doctrines you found plausible and reject the others. You, yourself, your intuitions and feelings, rather than the Bible or church teaching, were the final arbiters of right and wrong. I faced three possibilities. Abandon Christianity completely so that I would be free to pursue my desires, ambitions, and passions without any inhibition. Two, reaffirm being a mainline Christian. Or three, embrace the gospel and throw my lot in with the little despised band of evangelical Christians on a very progressive campus. Why did I end up choosing option three? Writing 50 years after the events, I cannot remember my thought processes perfectly, but one way the campus ministry group appealed to me was by claiming that their way was based on evidence and argument. Looking back on it, some of these claims were overblown, and yet this invitation to reason and to think rather than simply follow my desires was compelling. Almost as decisive for me, however, was an unadorned reading of the gospel texts. Our fellowship meetings were largely Bible studies. As a group, we reread the passages and discussed our observations. Without coercion, I discovered in those texts a Jesus who was inexplicable on the basis of my then-held theories about who he was. When reading the Gospels, I had a sense of personal encounter with an immediate presence, and yet the texts appealed to my reason as well. I concluded that the Jesus I met there could not have been fabricated by the early church, nor could he be domesticated as just another religious sage or teacher. The Christian Gospel confronted me, one could say, at the worldview level. It challenged the baseline narratives of my culture, if Jesus was who he said he was, then my identity was not something I could define by myself. I could only realize my true self by aligning with Christ. I reflected long and hard on Jesus' words in Mark 8, 34-37, especially as they were rendered in the New English Bible translation. Anyone who wishes to be a follower of mine must leave self behind. He must take up his cross and come with me. What does a man gain by winning the whole world at the cost of his true self? It was a striking paradox. In one sense, to follow Christ is to leave self behind. 
that is, to no longer make self-definition and fulfillment one's chief concern, but rather to live for Christ. And yet Jesus said, this is the way to discover your true self. In fact, if you were merely to achieve your goals and fulfill all your wildest dreams, you would only succeed in becoming alienated from the man or woman you were meant to be. You can only become yourself if you do what you were created to do, to serve and obey God unconditionally, to love and rejoice in Him above all other things. There could not be a more counterculture idea. Well, that's a great piece from that book, and I'd recommend reading it. It will challenge you. It has me. When I was 19 years old, I was still confused about this concept of the Trinity, the relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I was a bit because I grew up in a family that half of the family, my grandmother, aunt, ten cousins, were all Jehovah's Witnesses. And Jehovah's Witnesses don't believe that Jesus is God. And there's a whole discussion around that. I don't really want to get into the theology of it or the history of how they came to follow Charles Russell. But one of their main tenets is Jesus was a God, but not God himself. And so I went to a mentor of mine at the time, and he explained it brilliantly. And he asked two questions. And the first one was, is the son subjected to the father? The answer, yes. Jesus says, the father is greater than I am. And he also says, no one knows when the end will come except the father. That would seem to prove that there is no Trinity and the Bible doesn't actually contain the word Trinity. So that's where I was stuck. And I was stuck in my intellect around that. And then this mentor asked a second question, is the father, son, and Holy Spirit one? Also, yes. Jesus taught, as we just read, I and the father are one. So which is it? Well, it's both. Many principles in God's kingdom are at tension with one another. Faith and works are another example. James writes, faith without works is dead. And then Paul writes, you show me your faith, I'll show you my works. It's not either or, it's both. And so it is with this concept of what we call the Trinity. The Son submitted to the Father and the Holy Spirit flowing from the Son, yet all form one true God. For me personally, the final step at age 19 was to challenge God to reveal himself to me. So one night, and this is over 40 years ago now, I said to God, look, if you are who you say you are, then show me. And God does not shrink from a challenge. So I went to sleep with questions about God's relationship with himself, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And when I woke up the next morning, I was certain in a way that was beyond all understanding. Faith was born in me. Ask him to reveal himself to you. You won't be disappointed. So as we near the end, I just want to ask you, did you like last week's worship song, Dayspring? It's simple, yet powerful. Kind of fits with one of our vision statements, profound simplicity. This week, I have another Ted Sackmas song performed by Jordan, my nephew. I'd like you to join with all of us as we learn to worship with a song titled, He Is the One. Its lyrics are torn right out of the first chapter of Paul's letter to the Colossians. Allow me to read a few verses from that letter. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him 
and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. That was Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. Jesus is preeminent. That means he is first in everything. First in importance, first in honor, first in exaltation. And the grammar of the verse indicates that Jesus is the head and the beginning and the firstborn in order that he might be the preeminent one. I'll leave the link to that song for you in the footnotes. Well, thank you for joining me again today at Church of Pod. Our email address is churchofpod at gmail.com. Until we come together again next week, may the Lord truly bless you.